Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, James Dickerson. Good evening, everyone. Oh, please. With that kind of introduction, you guys could do better than that. So let's try it again. I mean, that was a brilliant introduction. I mean, I think the best one I've ever had. So let's try it again, if we're all agreeing to do that. So good evening, everyone. Good evening. Oh, okay. I feel good now. So uh, this isn't a lecture. And so if you came here for a lecture, I'm sorry. I'm not going to lecture at you. As you heard in that lovely introduction, I used to be a professor. And one of the reasons why, among several, that I decided no longer to be a professor is that I didn't like lecturing at people. It doesn't really do you any good because, A, you have a complex that I'm up here. The people that you're lecturing to have a complex that they're being talked down to. And it, it messed with my brain. So we're going to have a discussion. OK? Everyone agree? Yes. Now, I have some slides. Uh, hopefully, they make sense. They're going to talk a little bit about what Consumer Reports is, for those of you who aren't so familiar with uh, our organization. It'll be a primer for a discussion about three case studies that try to get at the heart of this science for good. Now, if you know us, our consumer reports, if you know us, you know that we do, most famously, comparative testing of products, goods, and services. But ho hopefully, over the next few minutes, you'll get to see that Consumer Reports does a lot more than that. And a lot of the things that we do that somehow are behind the scenes or don't really get a lot of press coverage are things that really are trying to do good for society. So I want you to have that in mind, just as a kind of a, a haze for our discussion, not as a a road sign, not as a this is true, but just as an idea. And hopefully by the end of our discussion, I'll be able to convince you that what we are doing is for the good of society. And hopefully the good for, you know, for the good of each one of you individually. Sound all right? Everyone's okay with that kind of premise? All right. So let's get started. So I, uh, almost by obligation, have to assert what we are by starting with our mission, our mission statement. And so Consumer Reports uh, is an independent, 100% independent organization that is also a nonprofit, 501c3. Most people don't know that. And we do our good by working with consumers side by side, to ensure that the world is fairer, safer, and more transparent. That's it. Now, we try to do this by doing lots of different things, and that will be the substance of what we'll be talking about. We try to ensure 
that the needs of the average consumer are first and foremost in the marketplace. Now, those needs might be needs that you, sir, are aware of, but they might be needs that you, ma'am, have no clue about. But there's certainly needs from our perspective that you have. And we try to make sure that they are first and foremost in the marketplace. And we try to do that more likely with our comparative testing, but really in general, by giving the average person trusted information, trusted knowledge, so that they can make their own decisions, but make those decisions that are as good as possible and as informed as possible. Okay, so that's the mission statement. So what do we actually do day to day? So we really do three different things. We first investigate the consumer marketplace. And we do that through social science research. So we have a team of market analysts. We have a team of surveyists. We have a team of statisticians that try to understand what is the state of the marketplace from the point of view of the consumer as the consumer sees the marketplace. We do the well-known product testing the comparative testing of products. And we do a variety of safety research. And so it's not comparative testing of the performance of objects or, or services, but just in determining whether there is any consumer harm because of the presence, the use, or the misuse of those products. So we try to survey what is the state of the marketplace and then once we collect that data, that information, we try to disseminate it. And we disseminate it through two different strategies. One is through traditional dissemination, through uh, our editorial work, uh, our uh, stories that you can find in hard copy print, as well as our online platforms. We have extensive video capabilities, including a television studio in-house where we disseminate uh, short stories through uh, syndicated networks. Uh, they're the kinds of one to three minute pieces that you might find on your local TV news. But we also most recently developed our own television show. So we have our own TV show on Saturdays, check your local listings, on NBC. So a pretty nice partner to have. And in that case, it's not so much disseminating news, but it's disseminating what is the state of the marketplace for an informed thinker, be they four years old or something older than four. You're supposed to laugh at that one. Okay, we're, we're, we're getting to know each other, it's okay. We also try to disseminate through a different means, which is through our advocacy work, through our policy development and, and pushing policy through Congress as well as a variety of agencies. And perhaps one of our most hidden but most important uh, efforts, which is grassroots mobilization of the general public to impart change in the marketplace. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in one of the case studies. And, though, and so for those of you who don't know, we do all of this, as I said, 100% independently. 
So we take no advertisements from anyone. We take no funding from the government at all. So we're not a, 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 you know, a puppet of the government. And we take no free samples. So every single thing that we do, a comparative test, every single thing that we do, a safety test, is bought by us. So that allows us to have, at worst, a very strong, stiff-arm, arm's-length distance from the rest of the, the consumer marketplace. And so that allows us to say things that many others can't say or won't say because of repercussions or, or things like that. Okay, so we, as the title of this slide says, we try to have marketplace change in everything that we do. And the way that we try to organize it to some extent is by general product categories. And so we call these groups consumer impact areas, or CIAs. So we focus on these. There are a number of others, but we've chosen these six to be the ones that we felt, based on our history, based on how we uh, do our, our business, we could have the most significant impact. So food, uh, something we'll come back to later on. Money, uh, how uh, you acquire money, how you use money, how money is taken from you in ways that you may not be aware of. Health and healthcare, automobiles, everything associated with automobiles, including car seats, as you see in this uh, image, uh, as well as uh, tires. Home, for us, home is basically products, goods, and services that you would have or you would use inside your home or around your home, in your yard or in your driveway or something like that. And then one of the most rapidly emerging uh, areas for us, which is tech, meaning electronic, uh, electronic devices, uh, as well as privacy. And it might mean electronic privacy. It might just mean privacy in general. Uh, privacy has certainly been an issue since the beginning of time. But for us, we're really at a point where it might go catastrophic. And so we feel like this is the right time to not just step in and be a participant, not just step in and be a leader, but really say this is something that we have to do Otherwise, society as we know it could collapse. And so I'll, I'll refer to it uh, in one of the slides later on. But today, I'm going to uh, review for us some case studies. And those case studies will focus on uh, food, will focus on health and healthcare, and will focus on, if I remember correctly, home those three areas. So far so good? People are asleep. People need a jolt. There's a jolt coming, by the way. So be, beware. If you do fall asleep, you're going to get it. Okay, we're good. This is, I'm obliged to show this because this is what people know us for. 
comparative testing of products, goods, and services. We do all of our investigations, including our comparative uh, tests or comparative ratings, based on evidence, based on data that really is the heart of everything that we do. And people know this is bad, this is great. We know that all the corporations out there in the consumer marketplace want to get these from us. It's just, it is what it is. We try to give this as a way to convey what we're thinking about. But from now on, forget that you saw this. I'm obliged to show this in every presentation I give because it's our trademark. It's what we are known for. But we're not really going to talk about comparative ratings. So we're done with it. Last prep slide so that we're all on the same page. This is consumer reports by numbers. So we have about six and a half million members, people that uh, visit us uh, and visit our information either through a hard copy magazine, through our online platform, our website, or through our social media streams. We're about 540 employees spread across five offices, one of which is actually in California, in San Francisco. We receive, as, as an easy metric to, to provide you, about 14 million unique visits uh, each month. So we know that we reach people uh, through our online platform. We have about 63 laboratories uh, across two different campuses, one in our headquarters, which is in Yonkers, New York. If you're ever in New York City, ring me up. Be happy to show you our facilities. And we get uh, uh, visits from our supporters literally every day. So if you happen to be in New York, you'll see my email address. Send me an email. Be happy to show you around. We have a 327-acre uh, automobile test facility in rural uh, Connecticut. Its first life was uh, an airport. Yeah, an airport. Uh, then it got turned into a race car track. Uh, and then it uh, was purchased by Consumer Reports. It's a brilliant space. Uh, it allows us to do off-road testing. Uh, you can drive a Tesla at 140 miles an hour uh, and then skid it out. It's really cool. It's, it's a lot of fun. And then every year we test about 2,500 products. So we test we feel a good swath of what is going on in the marketplace. And so the marketplace. So we try to do good in the marketplace by working side by side with consumers. And so when I was preparing this talk and preparing a, a talk I'm giving tomorrow at uh, University of California's uh, Polytechnic University, I was trying to find a way to talk about my experiences in the consumer marketplace in sort of a humorous way, because I like humor, but in a way that let you know that it's serious. And so I happen to be a fan of the martial arts. And I'm a real fan of something called mixed martial arts. How many of you have heard of mixed martial arts. Okay, so enough. 
So if you are familiar with mixed martial arts, you know that mixed martial arts are competed in an octagon, where people use karate and boxing and jiu-jitsu to fight it out. And so, you see where I'm going? I heard someone laugh. So my experiences over the last three years or so working with Consumer Reports on behalf of you, the consumer, I've been bruised because the marketplace, it really is kind of like working and living in an octagon where you have these different perspectives on what the consumer marketplace actually is. You have clearly consumers. You clearly have consumer advocates like ourselves. But you also have manufacturers and distributors. These are places like Walmart and Target and things like that, Amazon. Manufacturers and producers are really the the people that create whatever we end up consuming, whatever we end up buying. So that could mean in the food realm, it could be a farmer or a rancher. It doesn't have to be a producer as such, someone that manufactures something. It's just someone who gives forth into the marketplace a product. An underrepresented and underappreciated area are the people who design products. Media, journalists, influencers, people who give opinions or perspectives on what's going on in this octagon. And then uh, certainly legislators, the people that make laws associated with commerce, and then standard-setting boards, which you'll hear about uh, a little bit later, that set the standards on what can and cannot be sold in the marketplace. You might think that this is a nice, harmonious, lovely family of people. (laughs) It's interesting because each entity here is comprised of people that consume. I think. Most of them, I think, have blood, but I'm not always sure of that. And so you would think that they would all understand the point of view of the consumer. And so as you'll see in the next few slides, sometimes it's the case that these different sides of the octagon, and you'll understand why I'm using this metaphor now, just act as if they have no clue what someone might want to have i.e. something that doesn't maim them. Okay, so so I'm going to step aside for a second. I'm glad that you like my humor. (laughs) You'll know when I'm getting serious. And there's some points where I'm going to get dead serious. But I'm glad you like my humor. Because this isn't a lecture, right? We're having a talk. We're just chatting it out. Okay, we're in a good state. So I'm going to use three case studies, one essentially from the life sciences, one essentially from the physical sciences, and one from the the health sciences to try to prove to you that we use science to do good. And so I wanted to start the discussion about the life sciences for good by going back to our inception. So we were founded in 1936 as Consumer Union, 
That's how I think most people know us by, Consumers Union. And back in 1936, when we published our first report from May of 1936, guess what was on the cover? A study about food. And it wasn't just any old food. It was about milk. The interesting thing was, was that this study was to determine, was there any difference and what those differences were between different grades of milk? Now, most of us, if we go to the grocery store or the local store and you buy milk, all you know is grade A, because that's become the standard. That's become the accepted practice. But back in 1936, there were four grades of milk that you could buy. Grade A, grade B, grade C, and grade D. And so back then, we were saying, hmm, is there any difference between these? And so we did a very straightforward scientific study to determine what level of pathogen, bacteria, were in grade A, grade B, grade C, and grade D. Can someone tell me what we found? Not to say that you read this or you were around, but just what do you guess? Absolutely no difference. Zero difference. And so this was the first expose on the milk industry to say they were BSing us. And so this was our first demonstration of our mission back then, which was to protect the consumer from big business. And so we've been doing this since our first days. And so we've done lots of things in the food space since then, using uh, life sciences, biology, essentially, and biological studies to try to make sure that the consumer marketplace was good for you. Recent examples of that include uh, something called the Chain Reaction Report. Some of you may have heard about it, which was a, a, a collaboration with a number of nonprofits to demonstrate and try to change the state of food, particularly the use of antibiotics in the fast food industry. And so through our efforts over the course of a number of years, we were able to get chains like Burger King, and Kentucky Fried Chicken to pledge on air, on tape, that they will no longer uh, use any product that has antibiotics uh, in their growth, i.e. in the chicken, or in any of the byproducts uh, or any of the, uh, the accessory products that they sell in their, in their stores. This took almost 10 years of effort to get this to, to be realized. More recently than that, we've done investigations about the presence of uh, contaminants in things like baby food and juice. We do very interesting work on food labels and seals. And later this year, for those of you who are members of our uh, publication, you'll, you'll be uh, uh, the first to know about a brand new ratings type where we we're going to rate food labels like the word natural, or seals like USDA certified organic, and let you know which ones 
are verifiable and valid and full of real information, and which ones aren't as much. You might have noticed I skipped this line, pathogens and fruits and vegetables, and that actually leads me into the next slide. So as a case study, uh, I want to talk a little bit uh, about leafy greens. So here's the dichotomy, right? We all know, you know, our doctors, our spouses, our kids, or, you know, everyone tells us, you got to eat lettuce, you got to eat kale, you got to eat whatever, right? Leafy greens are good for you. And even if you don't like their taste or the texture and all that, you, you concede. Like, okay, yes, I should eat more. They're good for me. Thank you. The problem has been, at least from my point of view, that of late, of you know, last two, two and a half years, the United States public has been the unfortunate victim of a number of pathogen outbreaks, of viral and bacterial outbreaks associated with leafy greens. The first one that came to our gross attention was the multi-year outbreak of E. coli associated with romaine lettuce. And I think most people uh, have heard about that. A more recent investigation uh, that we completed in July identified uh, with a number of vegetables, uh, not just leafy greens, the presence of uh, listeria. Again, another bad thing you don't want to have in your your lunchtime meal. But I want to focus back on the E. coli situation. So does everyone remember the first time you heard about E. coli and or someone telling you, hey, stop eating romaine lettuce? You kind of remember that? Okay. So let me tell you a story. So back when that first occurred, which was in late, uh, I think 2000, it was actually late 2017, there were stories, kind of random, it seemed random stories here and there, across the country. Oh, someone got sick and went to the hospital. Oh, someone, you know, felt a little queasy. You would hear about this on your local news, occasionally in New York Times, often on Yelp. Maybe you've heard of Yelp, the, the restaurant uh, rating system. But there was no congealed kind of sense that there was something wrong. Then came January, right after the holidays, and there was a spike. And it seemed like it was on every sort of news program, every radio show known to man. And Consumer Reports just listened and waited for someone, someone with authority, like a government agency, not going to name any names, CDC, <coughs> excuse me, uh, or another government agency, <coughs> USDA, uh, to do something about it. You hear the dead silence? We waited and waited. 
And after the 34th report of someone going to the hospital and getting gravely ill came out, my team said, okay, this is just enough. This is, this is stupid. I, as a scientist, my team of food safety experts as scientists and engineers looked at each other, and I remember this vividly, saying, okay, if no one's going to do something about it, maybe we should. And so we got up, we have a platform, and we called upon the community to say, stop eating romaine lettuce. Now, that sounds kind of extreme, right? Just stop eating something. Why? Well, we don't know. We just know that people are getting sick. Well, where's it coming from? Well, we don't know because no one, we learn later, no one knew where it was coming from. No, no, like no one, not even the growers knew where it was coming from. But it made sense to us as logical thinkers and as consumers that we should probably stop eating it because the likelihood of getting sick is pretty high. So we made the public call. And guess what happened? Consumer reports. Oh, yeah, there they are. From the industry. How dare you, Consumer Reports? You're so... You're, you are making all these calls to stop eating. There's no reason that we should stop eating romaine lettuce. Lettuce is healthy for you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, why are people getting sick? Oh, no, no, no. Well, so romaine lettuce is really healthy for you. Why are people getting sick? Well, uh, we're looking into those things. Okay, enough of theatrics. What we learned after six months of investigation, was that the industry not only didn't know what square 10,000 miles it was coming from, they didn't really know initially how it could even get onto the lettuce. And so Consumer Reports, again, using science and facts that were already in evidence and a little bit of gray cells, figured out that it was probably coming from contaminated irrigation uh, channels. Why? Well, on average, the distance between these growing fields, which some of which are literally thousands of square miles individually, were often no more than two to 400 feet away from cattle feeding bins. All of you got that in how many seconds? <laughs> the industry, again, I don't, I don't hate them, nothing personal. I'm just saying. Industry, over the course of six months, couldn't figure that out. And so a partner of ours, you know, because we partner with everyone. You remember that octagon? We try to work with everyone. A partner of ours said, uh, Maybe we should try to do something about this. Dr. Mehmet Oz uh, invited myself and the representative from the Leafy Greens uh, growers industry, a uh, guy named Scott, uh, Scott Horsfault, great guy, actually, uh, to talk about the state of the marketplace. And so this was just after the first big incident. 
And Scott got on TV and said, we're going to do what we can to track lettuce from source to table. We're going to do all these things. We're going to do all these things. We're gonna, see my hands waving? We're going to do all of these things, and we're going to remedy it. Six months later, yet another outbreak of E. coli, also based on likely contaminated uh, irrigation channels. Also, they had no idea how it possibly could happen when we've done so much effort to increase the distance between our fields and the livestock areas from 400 feet to like 1,000 feet. That's like, that has to be enough, right? Irrigation channels, if you don't know, can be upwards of a mile long. So 1,000 feet, last time I checked, is shorter than a mile. Again, maybe, maybe I should call this discussion we're having just numbers. And is this number bigger than this number? And so this is one example of how we're trying to work with all parts of the octagon to ensure that the information that is in evidence, that is known to some, but should be known by all, is actually known by all, so that you can make a decision on whether you're going to risk having that romaine lettuce or whether you're going to decide to have bib lettuce instead. We're good so far? Hopefully you're taking notes for the question and answer time. Okay. Case study two. And this got closer to me because I'm a physicist, so... I got to do a little bit of physics here. And when I first was presented this concern by our product safety team that reports to me, I didn't really understand how profound of a project not only would this become, but it would become part of who I am. So it was, it was a study that we uh, investigated existing government data and tried to understand what product categories had the highest risk for injury and fatality. And when we did this uh, as a refresh in 2017, oddly enough, furniture rose to the top five. And so when I was presented this, I'm like, really? What? Like, what? Furniture? Like, what? It's not exploding or anything. There are batteries in these things. I don't, I don't understand. What's going on? And so then I was given the data. And then roughly simultaneously, there was a, a spate of news regarding IKEA, uh, one of the biggest manufacturers in the world, that had a, a small problem with one of their, their products. And I'll come back to IKEA uh, if I remember a little bit later, but if I don't remember, please someone ask me about IKEA and the current state during the Q&A session. And so what we found out when we did this study of injuries and deaths was that within a 16-year period, we found 195 people that were killed, 
not by all types of furniture falling over on them or injuring them or hitting them, but specifically things that are called, in the clinical sense, clothing storage units. Now, clothing storage units have a more common term that I knew. They're called dressers. They have drawers, you put your clothes, you put the random stuff that finds their way into your pockets, all that stuff into these dresser drawers. So 195 people over 16 years were killed by these things falling over on them. And then annually, 2,500 people are injured by these things falling over on them. Now, I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. It's all little kids climbing up on them, a la the news stories or what you heard about Ikea. Not true. About 60% are, uh, of injuries and deaths are from kids under the age of six. At least 40%. Oh, of course, well, Chris, well, that 40% have to be kids from six to like, when they stop being dumb, which is like 45. <laughs> so it has to be somewhere around there, right? So in fact, between 18 and 65, there was roughly uh, one a year that were killed. 18 to 65. And multiple dozens every year are injured, 18 to 65. And so I said to my, my uh, uh, colleague, who's a, a statistician, I said, okay, I, I'm not sure I really believe it. And so he pulled out for me and showed me the government report of someone age 49, perfect health, perfect mental capacity, who was suffocated by a piece of furniture falling over on them. So it can happen to anybody. So that, that got my attention. And that got me motivated to try to help the situation. And so, for this topic, if you remember anything, remember that the dressers are largely designed to have the dresser drawers open and close. That's about it. What dressers are often not thought about in terms of their design, design comes back in it again, is what might be an unintended use of the dresser, i.e. a ladder, or foreseeable misuse, which is open a dresser drawer a little bit and use it as a crutch to bend over and pick up something. Oh, wow. So yeah, you, you're having the aha moment that I had. And so what do we do? We took from our market research basically the top 24 most popular dressers, and we wanted to see how do these dressers perform in terms of their stability? And was there anything that we could learn from the physics of the situation? And the physics of the situation is something called torque, whether something twists this way or twists that way. We wanted to see if there's something that we could say in general about the nature of these dressers that would say, oh, these are stable, these are unstable. And so we have 24 up here that we investigated. 
And so I'm now going to break into you and say, I'm going to pick three of these. And I want you, I'm going to give you some statistics about them, some information. And I want you to tell me, just by the information that you see here, whether addresser passed our most rigorous of tests, which went above and beyond the existing voluntary industry standard, which put 60 pounds on the top dresser drawer completely open and made sure that it stayed upright? Which dresser just passed the existing voluntary industry standard, which is dresser drawer all the way open, and you put 50 pounds on the top dresser? And which one did somewhere in between? Now, I just randomly picked three that you see here. Now, can you tell, after a little bit of thought, which one performed the best in this stability test? Which one performed, eh, okay? And which one didn't perform so well? Have an idea? Okay, so how many people think that this one performed the best? By show of hands. All right, we have true believers, two in the back. How many people think this one performed the best? Okay, it's about 35% of the audience. And then how many think this one performed the best? All right, that's about 64% of the audience. Okay, so this one performed the best. This one performed so-so, and this didn't perform well at all. But I picked these deliberately from our cat, uh, coterie of 24 of our closest favorite dressers, because when you take a look at these and look at the statistics, the price, the dimensions, and the weight, when we did our statistical analysis, we found that there were no four characteristics that uniquely identified whether a dresser was going to be stable or not. So the conclusion, and I think it might be in the next slide, is that you cannot tell whether a dresser is going to be stable, not only just by looking at it, but knowing all of this information about it. That, for me, was shocking. Because most people, even people that during this period we were investigating this, I just went up to and, you know, was a little crazy, like, hey, do you have a dresser? Uh, go away. Okay, because we live in New York, and, you know, New York people are not, you know, like, go away. But some of them said, oh, you have a dresser, and it's, oh, tell me about it. Do you think it's stable? And they would tell me the dimensions and, and all these different things, and I would tell them, guess what? I can't tell, as a physicist, doing all the free body diagrams, I can't tell you whether your dresser is going to be stable or not. So, with all that being said, something I mentioned earlier, the standards that allow dressers to be manufactured and sold in the US are, that's not a typo. 
voluntary. That means that manufacturers can look at the standards and do this. Say, I don't care. And there's no one in the government, there's no one anywhere that can say, okay, well, you can't sell your dresser because it's entirely voluntary. Now, there's a lot of market pressure to try to get them to do it, but there's no way to legally force them to abide by the existing standards. And so we knew that, we knew all of this information, and we said we still have to impart change on behalf of consumers. And so what we ended up doing uh, most recently were, I think, really notable successes that we're quite proud of. One, that we helped through grassroots efforts, partnering with six different families who lost children because of furniture tip-over. We were able to get a new law passed in New York State uh, called Harper's Law, named after one of the children who died that requires all retailers of new furniture sold in New York State to provide tip restraints, which are the straps that go on the back of the, uh, the dressers, and post a notice of the risks alongside of where the marketing is for uh, the sale of those dressers. And so that for us was a win because this is the first law of its kind in the United States. Nowhere else in the United States is it a requirement to have anti-tip equipment sold along with the furniture. And then another thing that we ended up doing was that, yes, it's still voluntary, but strangely enough, that standard only applied to dressers that were 30 inches and taller. You might say, why? We have no idea. And even people that have been in the industry for 40 years also don't know entirely why it was 30 inches. And so when we first campaigned saying, hey, you should probably reduce the height to try to cover more dressers, I'm, I'm going to do this again. I know it's offensive, but I'm going to do this again. The industry, the industry said, hey. And they got, it got, became very fluid for them, almost artistic. And then they countered by saying, well, there's no evidence that anyone has been injured by dressers that are shorter than 30 inches. And we took that as a challenge. And so we went to the proverbial videotape. We went to the NICE data. Again, it's government-provided data. And we showed them that there was a death attributed to one of the companies pieces of furniture that were doing this to us that killed someone that was 27 inches tall. Not with 27 inches and 500 pounds of weight on top, it was just the dresser. And so that was the proof that got them to say, okay, we'll step back, we'll hear what you're saying, and then a, a multilateral, unilateral effort from all parts of the marketplace got the standard changed to 27. And so, again, example of when you have data, you have ration, and you use science, you use STEM for the appropriate means, you can change a little bit of the marketplace. I know I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to speed it up. 
I'll skip this. Why? It's just, it's another gratuitous shot that says this guy. But, you know, you don't want to see Lester Holt. You want to see me. So we'll, we'll skip over that. But you can find it. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy to find. So the last one, and this one was really interesting for me, uh, because it went a little bit backwards uh, uh, in our history to deal with something that, ostensibly, designers and engineers should have taken care of this when it first occurred, but took a little bit of nudging for anything to happen. And now, I think this is an example of how a little bit of insight, a little bit of nudging, and a little bit of science and engineering can actually solve a problem. And so in this case, the issue was uh, overdoses, uh, accidental overdoses of uh, children's liquid uh, cold medicine. The issue was that up until about eight years ago, and I'm, I'm sure if you have kids, you know this, liquid cold medicine were sold in bottles that were the same bottles as adult cold medicine. Identical, just a different label. Now, others in the social science community have done studies to show that the predominance of overdoses, accidental overdoses, when children get into medicines and, and uh, take too much of the medicine, occurred more likely with the cold medicine made for children than it was for adult cold medicine. Why? Because the cold medicine for children was often left out because the kid was sick. So it was readily available. The thing is, is that up until, as I said a few years ago, these things called flow restrictors didn't exist. Flow restrictors are basically a way to minimize how much liquid gets out of the bottle at any one time. And so when there was a spate, unfortunately, of overdoses of children you know, from zero to about 13, what did the industry do? What did manufacturers do? They didn't think about it rationally. They didn't say, hmm, let's try to solve this problem in a rational, scientific, deliberate fashion. They said, here's some money, solve it. And someone in, from engineering said, well, a way to solve it is to restrict how much liquid comes out. And so industry said, yeah, it's a great idea. Get me some flow restrictors. And so what they did is that they literally found some flow restrictors that fit the nozzle opening of their bottles and just shoved them in. So same bottle, same design, with just a piece of plastic thrown in. And here are a couple examples of the ones that were thrown in. It was quick, not surprising, economical for them, cheap, and they thought it was effective. So Consumer Reports stepped in. We said, okay, because we do comparative testing, do flow restrictors, the way that they went about it, actually work? In some cases, yes. 
but not really well. In some cases, there was no difference. In one rare case, anyone know what I'm about to say? It was worse. Like, how, how how's that? So anyway, we investigated this. Here's another video, but we don't have enough time. Ask me for it, and I'll, I'll show it to you. We found that the strategy of manufacturers to just throw something at it just didn't work. And so myself, Consumer Reports, along with a number of people in this marketplace, I'll get to the next slide, partnered with the Center for Disease Control in in an initiative called PROTECT. And in this case, the partners include consumer advocates like ourselves, manufacturers, distributors, designers of not only bottles, but flow restrictors, as well as uh, a group that's not represented here, physicians and pharmacists, got together and said, okay, we need to solve this. And over the course of a decade, we were able to say now that we've been able to reduce the number of accidental overdoses in children because flow restrictors were thought about in a rational fashion. So we now have flow restrictors on almost every single bottle of liquid, uh, liquid cold medicine for children, such that when you grab the bottle and you squeeze on it, nothing comes out. So again, a little, a little bit of science, a little bit of engineering, a little bit of gray matter, working appropriately can go a long way. And so my summary is, this guy is amazing. Uh, no, no, no. So the summary is, you know, Consumer Reports does a lot to try to help the general public. We do work in comparative testing. We do work in dissemination, as you see. We're doing work uh, with the help, uh, the generous support of someone you may know, Craig Newmark of Craigslist, to try to do work in uh, digital privacy and security. He's funded something uh, for Consumer Reports called the Digital Lab. So we now have a platform to test out things in the ethereal space, online, in the same ways, with the same rigor, as we test out washers and dryers, as we test out automobiles, as we test out everything that we do. And so with that, if you have any questions about CR as an organization, about our platforms, how we try to in part change uh, in the marketplace uh, for the betterment of society. Here's my email address. I try to respond as quickly as I can. Uh, please, if you're on social media, follow us. And lastly, thank you very much for your attention. I'd be happy to answer questions. <laughs>